All right. Good morning, Doug. We are here to answer some members, some questions from members of our file, the private membership group, which you can find out about by clicking in link in the description to this video. Uh, before we get to those questions, though, um, I think it's worth sharing this video um, that I, th I feel like is a good microcosm of the United States at this point. Just one second. Let me show you. Okay. dollars in debt, and we have probably just under a million dollars in debt, and we want to know how to get debt-free without filing bankruptcy. Okay. How much of that is a mortgage? Uh, the mortgage, about two ten. So you have six hundred thousand dollars in what? Three hundred thirty-five is about in student loans. We both have advanced degrees. And then a lot, the rest is really credit cards and personal loans. So you have $300,000 of credit cards and personal loans? We have about so 335000 in student loans and about 136000 in credit cards, 44000 personal loans, and 35000 car loans. Okay. Um, how old are you? I'm 29. Okay. So what in the world? <laughs> so, yeah. I so mean, we, uh, are you both on this, or is this just one of you that's completely lost your mind? Well, I have the majority of the student loans, and he has the majority of the, of the credit cards. My my credit card debt is about, it's not great. Okay, it's so why does, he, why does he at 29 years old run up a hundred grand in credit card debt? Well, he's he's 32, but um, I I think it's one of those things where just making really poor financial decisions, thinking, be able to pay it down as you go, and then it doesn't it doesn't happen. Yeah. And okay, so you both have I, advanced degrees. What are your degrees in? We do. So I have a degree in both of our advanced degrees. No, he has an MBA, and I have an advanced degree in policy. I work in the government, and we actually both do now at this point. Actually. <sighs> okay, so your household income is what? Our household income is about two thirty. Okay, all right. Um, is there recognition on both of your parts how absurd this situation is? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, there is. Right. So I think we're both a bit scared and want to do anything we can to avoid. Okay, great. Then I'm then I'm then I'm on your team. I can skip. I think that's mostly it. Doug, what do you think about that? Well, going through that conversation, there are at least, let's see if I can remember them all, because I wasn't making notes of stupid points all along the way. Well, first of all, uh, I was annoyed by her, her her scratchy, whiny voice. You know, that annoyed me. Second thing, these people, these people are, probably have reasonable high IQs, the kind that you get on a test, but they're both stupid. And here's some evidence for that. One has an MBA. How does somebody get an MBA and get themselves simultaneously that deeply in debt? I mean, what kind of an MBA is that that they don't teach you about the disadvantages of, of debt? And then the other idiot, I guess it was her, has, has a, an advanced degree for which they paid have $300,000 of student loan debt. Was that the number? Get an advanced degree in public policy. 
what possible useful purpose is that? And I have absolutely no sympathy for the fact that they're both hauling down fat salaries from the government at their age. I mean, uh, this is, uh, and they're thinking about bankruptcy, but they should know, at least the public policy and the MBA higher degree <laughs> person should both know that the law is you can't, you can't uh, avoid, uh, student loan debt. At least that's. Yeah, you can't discharge time. it. Yeah, that's right. So what are they going to do? Default on the loans? You said private loans. That must be from friends or something that some extra money. I don't, I, I mean, they, say, they say, they say personal loans, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's just like a line of credit from the bank, you know? I'm not sure. Maybe personal loans. Yeah, I'd like to dig into that a little bit more with these with these people. But um, and they only had two hundred thousand dollars in mortgage debt. So that's the thing. See, well, this, these people live in Washington D.C. What kind of a house what, can you buy in in D.C. where the average cost of a house is uh, well? Closing in on a million dollars, probably. Yeah. So this is, this is just insane, actually. Yeah, I think the things jump out to me, and I, I, I that was the second time I, well, that's the third time I watched it now, and I didn't catch this the first couple times, is that she says I have a million dollars in debt, and then says two hundred ten thousand is a mortgage, and then the finance guru says, well, what's the other six hundred thousand then? Now, my yeah, math's not very good, but they're missing a couple hundred thousand, aren't we? Yeah, they are. That's right. That's strange. And he was make, he was writing stuff down on, on paper, so that should have become obvious at that point. You would think so. And so then you wonder about all the numbers that she's making up because they never, you know, unless she was wrong about the starting number, there was lots of stuff missing from that. So that's, that's it's. I think that's just funny. The finance guru didn't catch that. Like, I'm sh- bad at math but you think he'd be better. Um, uh, but I think, so that was interesting. And then the, 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 I think he, the, the finance guru is so right though, when he says, basically you've been, you know, and he actually says this in a later segment, you've been living five to 10 X what your income and you have a very good income should allow you to live like, and is that not the best microcosm for America? Except maybe understated actually in the multiples of, of, of the living standard. Well, I think a lot of people are living above their means. I was talking to a friend of mine who runs a a successful small business, and uh, he found that uh, one of his longtime employees has stolen a couple hundred thousand dollars from the company in various ways and um, to live above her means. And I said, "Well, well, where did this woman spend all that money and you know it's the usual thing well victoria's secrets and uh, purchases and restaurants and trips and just in other words just living high off the hog and i think a lot of americans are doing that at this point certainly when you buy a when you buy a car today the average new car the number i saw the other day probably accurate the average price of a new car is $46,000. And it wasn't so long ago that you wouldn't spend $46,000 on something unless it had a 
basement, an unfinished basement. <laughs> That's a good point. Bill Bonner used for years. He would use this the example of his Ford F one fifty. And that's always the truck he's liked, I guess, and owned. And so he's like, you know, I bought first one he bought was like fifteen hundred bucks, and he said the last one he got was you know forty thousand or something like that. And he says, but it's you know it's not inflation according to the you know the the uh, the government's numbers because we have all the new technologies and new innovation you know that that's come with it. And uh, yeah, so all those costs have gone up a ton, and and they also they have to finance it for seven years now. Yes. And of course, you know, I hate bringing this kind of stuff up because it makes you sound like a crotchety old guy. Back in my day, uh, you know, we had to walk to school and it was uphill both ways in the snow and all this kind of thing. But the fact is, the genuine fact is that once upon a time in this country, if you wanted a car, you saved up for it and you bought it for cash. Which was doable because a nice car was like, uh, you know, 2000 or $2,500. And if you were a hotshot and you wanted a Corvette or a Cadillac, now you're talking $5,000 for a car. So from top of the line cars back then <laughs> to 45000 average price today, that's a, that's a, that's a huge jump. And, and of course, from paying cash, to, first it was two-year finance, three-year financing, five-year, seven-year. And now I wonder what percentage are leased so that instead of having a small asset, you go to an immediate liability, which never becomes an asset, even a small asset. Yeah, and it's a lifelong liability when you lease a car. You own nothing. You know, at least if you have a, have a seven-year loan and – you know, once again, going back into history where this stuff all started, when they first had mortgages on houses, it was a five-year mortgage with a 20% down payment. Now it's zero money down and, you know, years. 30 years. It's it, it's all completely – yes, of course, the average American is deeply in debt. Hmm. Do you think is, – is the is the function of the, the – the reason things have gotten so much more expensive because of – credit, the, the availability of credit, you know, and I know in like the, you know, you think of the cost of college, it seems like as the grants and the financing goes up, you know, the tuition goes up just perfectly aligned with it. So it just gets more expensive as more financing is available for it. Houses have gotten vastly more expensive as those financing options have become better. Like, it, you know, and I know there's the printing money and the other inflationary aspects, but it does the financing itself. I mean, does the, Ability to take out debt on to purchase assets on a broad basis. Does that have a, does that drive up the cost of them as well? Well, yes. Here's another thing that people have forgotten. It's that a sound banking system does not make consumer loans. Mm. I mean, historically speaking, if you were a bank, you owned a bank, uh, your loans would be short term, not banks, banks shouldn't be making long term loans that floating interest rates because they don't know what they're going to have to pay for the money that's in there. It, it should be, you got a thousand dollars of deposit. You pay 3% for a fixed period of time. You lend it for 6% for a corresponding equal period of time. And it's got to be self-liquidating, a real productive asset that has value as opposed to, you know, 
purchases at, at Victoria's Secret. The whole system is rotten from the ground up. Uh, it mm. actually is. And this could not have been done without uh, fractional reserve uh, on the part of the banks and the Federal Reserve backing up uh, the fractional reserve system. So I, I see no way out of this other than a catastrophe. What the nature of it is is uncertain, but yeah, it's certain so, news. So basically these products that people are buying with financing are essentially it is it is just inflation because yeah. of the money printing that occurs, but at the fractional reserve banking level rather than at the Fed level. You know, as they can find new things they can loan against, then that gives them a new excuse to create money, which then drives up all the costs of these big purchases. Yes, and it's so much of it is consumer goods. Yeah. In other words, goods that do not produce new wealth in themselves, but amount to living high off the hog, either by borrowing what other people have saved in the past or by mortgaging what you're probably, maybe, going to earn in the future. Uh, that's not the way it should work. But people have totally forgotten about these 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 basics. And it's a consumer society. Well, that's ridiculous. You can't have a consumer society. What about a producer society? <laughs> what about using that term instead? What's the producer doing? He says, what's the consumer doing? I don't care what the consumer is doing. I, I'd, I'd like to know... What are the producers doing? Because it's harder and harder to do. You know, there's a, a guy that's on um, another Zoom call I'm on. Uh, and, you know, he runs a pharmaceutical company uh, and does a lot of business with China. And um, he's saying, you know, it's uh, increasingly just impossible to do business. Now, I can, you know, with the drugs that we manufacture, I can always add on and people have to pay it because it's all paid by Medicare and Medicaid and this type of thing. So I don't really care. But just from a regulation point of view, it's becoming almost impossible for us to do anything. And we don't want to make any investments. And by the way, he mentioned, I'm just telling you boots on the ground stuff. This guy that is a, is a big deal in the business. He says, you know, there are a lot of, pharmaceutical products that are just not available anymore today. You can still get them if you go to this drugstore, but you can't get them at that drugstore anymore. And uh, he says, it's not just because costs are going way up, but the regulations are becoming onerous. And we just don't want to do anything here in this country. So we buy it from China, but that's unpredictable too. So Anyway, that's a tangent that I just thought I, it popped into my mind because I was on a Zoom call with this guy the other day, and he pointed this out. It's boots on the ground observation by somebody who's. And so, are like, are there this? Are there parts of his business that he's just? You said he's not making any new investments, and is he like, is he exiting certain markets because it's just not, you know, it's not worth the hassle for him. You know, I'm reading between the lines, talking to him, and it's like, why am I beating my head against the wall at this point? Because it's getting worse and worse. And this That's guy is not in any way ideologically driven. He's just a common sense business guy that likes to see, you know, a dollar and a quarter come back when he puts a dollar in. And it's, he says, why am I doing this? 
Why am I bothering? I think that's the big part of uh, Atlas Shrug that people that goes unnoticed really is that you think about the ideological motivation of, of you know people sort of a, the productive people abandoning the work you know for, but the more the biggest reason is more practical because it's just not worth it. Why am I going to trade my? Why am I going to deal with the hassle? I don't need this in my life. I, I have enough, and they just step away. And it falls exactly, and of course it's it's funny because it it filters down to the bottom of society too. All these people that are looking forward to a guaranteed annual income to say, I, I'm not going to work. I don't have to work. Screw that. Exactly. Yeah. The great resignation. You know, everyone is. I can, I, yeah. I can, I can eat on food stamps and there's 50 kinds of welfare that will more or less pay my rent and even get a free phone, a free cell phone. I guess they give those away under a lot of circumstances. They do. And if you get really, if you really want to, if you want to raise, you just can become homeless. And then, you know, well, at least the budget they've just paid for them is over a hundred thousand dollars in San Francisco. Hmm. Not, they is don't that, get the money. Is, is that per bum? A hundred thousand dollars is what they, the, the numbers crunch out to. The last time I calculated this actually was, it was three years ago or four years ago, but, um, it was 106,000 is what it averaged out to, but the homeless population has grown since then. So maybe, you know, maybe it's down to 80,000 that they spend per homeless person now. I don't know, but it's a lot. It's more than the average American wage is what is spent to support them. I'm sure they're <clears throat> buying them higher quality tents. Uh, something. I, <laughs> I, I just think, I, I just think it's all part of the nonprofit grift, you know, the, the, there's nonprofit agencies that serve the homeless and, yeah, you know, they've got, I think they're just well paid. Yeah, it, it, it is a grift. And incidentally, going back to that opening video that we had, where these, where these idiots have accumulated uh, $300,000 of student debt, there was a time not so long ago when people would talk about working their way through college by doing things like waiting on table and so forth. That's completely out of, uh, impossible today. I mean, it just—it's just amazing. The, the more I talk to you, the more I, honestly I realize how corrupting, a, like, unsound money is. Because it just—it just like all the underpinnings of ethical conduct basically get completely washed away and are totally unrecognizable by people anymore. Yeah. And it's not getting better. It's actually getting worse at an, excel at an accelerating rate. So this is actually just fascinating to watch. It, yes. it, it really is. I kind of wish they speed it up a little bit, you know, because it's, <laughs> on the other yes. hand, I don't. Because I, as I've said before, I'd rather have artificial good times than real bad times. And yeah. uh, we're living in the former at the moment. Mm. All right, well, let's get to some of these questions. We don't have, I don't have that many that I'd like to ask you today, but uh, we'll get to them here. First one says, what financial advice or tips would you give to a group of high school seniors? Well, to a group of high well, first of all, don't do what everybody's telling you to do, which is go to college. I mean, what you should do is now that you've gone through high school, what are you going to do? And I think going to college in lockstep with all the other kids is a tragic error. 
you don't know what you're doing or where you're doing or where to go or what to do or how you're going to pay for any of this stuff. You're going to probably borrow money or take money from your parents that you might be able to work a deal for them to No, going to college today is, uh, is not something you should do. So I think that's the most important thing is to rule that out and figure out what can you do with that four years of time that's going to be really productive. And we've talked about this before. It's that, uh, if you sit down and look at that four years of time and what does it cost to take a three month course in how to build a house from the foundation up and actually do it with your own hands and then perhaps take a three month course on perhaps even cordon bleu or something like that so that you're actually a qualified chef at that point. All you need is more practical experience. So, there have got to be over that four year period of time at very low cost, actually. There have got to be a dozen skills that you can really qualify your at. I mean, an outdoor survival course for uh, three months where you learn to track and camp and, you know, this yeah. type, this type of thing, survive in the wilderness. Okay. That's another block of time. Doesn't cost much. You can do it. Uh, go to a ranch and, uh, hunt us as a cowboy for, uh, for three months. Then go to a farm, hunt us as a farmer, a dairy farm, whatever, hog farm. It doesn't matter. You'll learn a lot, including how to work with machinery. I mean, this is stuff that you can do instead of going to college and paying an exorbitant amount of money to listen to idiots yap at you when you sit there and fall asleep. And even if the lecture is interesting, you've probably been out drinking the night before and uh, your notes are going to be good and unintelligible when you read them. If you even bother to do that, then exams, you just cram for them, which means that you, you know, college has become a scam. So scam. that would be my advice as to what you should do in your high school. Anything yeah. Matt? Only, a couple of things I say, just specific financial tips, real basics. No debt. You have you have to you have to. I mean, and part of the college problem is the debt, and it's it's the, it's the cost, obviously the opportunity cost, but also the core the raw debt that you incur by doing it. But in college, I think the opportunity costs are probably even greater than the debt itself. But if you you have debt is slavery. If you if you owe people money, you, it totally changes your options about what you can do, and it's because debt we can in, in the U.S. at least you can easily justify it. You know, like people will say, well, you work hard, you deserve a new car, you know, um, don't do it. I guess just don't do that at all. So avoid debt at all costs. Look at it like the plague I, I, when you're young, especially because you probably can't borrow money productively, you know, and, and you and leverage it into something, you know, put it into a productive venture or something. It's because you don't know what to do yet. So avoid debt. Um the second thing I would say is, and the, a lot of people I know who have done this, who pulled themselves up from, you know, out by their bootstraps, as they say, is that they say they were aggressive savers, aggressive, saving a third to half of their income, no matter how much they were earning, but saving. Cause, and, and as they kept, as their, as their income would go up, you know, they would increase their savings rather than increase their lifestyle costs. And then they, and so all of a sudden they get ahead. They have savings. They can do stuff. 
they they are not a debt slave, so they can they're free to travel. They're I mean they're free to come and go as they please. You know, like avoid those traps. I guess you got to have some capital. Absolutely, absolutely correct. I totally agree. Of course, one of the problems in an inflationary society is that if you're going to save, well, what are you going to save? Well, dollars, but the dollar is losing value at, they say five, but it's really more like 10% per year. So the government and, and the fractional reserve system and the Federal Reserve, the whole thing penalizes savers, which really makes it hard to get ahead. And, and encourages people to become serfs getting into debt. It's, it's really a, a perverse dilemma that yeah. people are being presented with today. Yeah. Yeah. And they, I mean, the solution to that would be to, you know, buy some silver or gold from a local dealer. You know, just if you got a hundred dollars in cash, you can go buy some silver with that. That's right. That's, and I've got to say, from the time I got out of college and started earning some money, uh, my saving has always been done in the form of gold coins. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is a speculation. I mean, sometimes, but you know, I've been doing this for 50 years and starting in the low forties when I first bought gold. And uh, hey, I've gotten 50, 50 to one on my initial money over 50 years. That's okay. And I've never had to dip into savings. Yeah. So, good and, and I keep saving even today with, you know, buying gold coins in addition to speculating in the markets and real estate and all that. And, you know, one, I, I do want to recommend um, a couple of books that I think anybody in high school should read. They should read Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Like it's really a smart book, uh, important change your way of thinking. And uh, also um, a book called The Reluctant Entrepreneur. Yeah, Mark Ford's book, or yeah. Michael Masterson, not sure which one he wrote it under, but. Yeah, I'm not, I can't remember either. But they're both really excellent, excellent books. And put the, put the words into practice in, in your own life, so. Good. That's good. Don't wait, uh, don't wait for the best years of your life sitting in a behind a, a desk and no, it's crazy. One one just one more question I have for you before we go on to the, the next uh uh file member question is that the, the a lot of people have this notion with debt that if we you know if if the currency is being destroyed, that having more debt is better with the you know something that it'll be washed away essentially in that. But when I when I look at the when I look around at the people I know and the examples that I can see so far, that hasn't that hasn't worked so far. You know what I mean? Like it's like their like the, their debt is still there, and it seems like it's a growing overhang over their life, even though the money is becoming worthless because their you know their their earnings power is maybe decreasing and or you know their savings is inflated away. What do you think about that notion of if there's inflation, you want to take out debt? more debt rather than less. I think it's an interesting, potentially, occasionally interesting strategy or speculation. Give you an example. Uh, when I sold the ranch in, at Aspen uh, a couple years ago, and I bought bought a place in Virginia, I paid cash for it, okay? 
nice house, paid cash for it. But then it occurred to me, wait a minute, this is crazy. They're giving away 30-year money at 3%. Now, I don't like debt, but yeah, I, I took out as big, I took out a big mortgage and I think I got three and an eighth percent is what I'm paying for a fixed 30 year mortgage. Now, took, took out the debt, but I still got the cash that I'm using productively. And I know that that mortgage is going to be inflated out of existence for all kinds of reasons today, especially at 3% money. It's so right. yeah, it's, it's a good speculative strategy occasionally, but should you do that with 6% mortgage money, which is what you have to pay now? Well, probably work out, but it's not like a gift anymore. Should you do what it if you, you don't have the cash? Should you do it if you don't have the cash though? You know, like you had, you, you could pay cash or take the debt and you can kind of arbitrage. Also, you're pretty sophisticated compared to the average person, but you had the cash. I think that's the most important part. And it was, a, it was you and you're looking at it analytically, you know, it's a poor allocation of capital given you know, how, how cheaply they loaned the money to me. But if you didn't have that cash, if you, if you required your future income in order to be, to, to be at a certain level in order to service the debt, is the, is the calculus different? Well, 3% mortgages don't exist anymore. So (laughs) maybe not in a different environment now. And I suppose a 6% mortgage is still kind of a gift because inflation is a, 10 and going higher. So yeah, you can do that. But now you're you're married to that house because there's no guarantee. Well, there never has been a guarantee, but you know, you, you you've got this monkey on your back that you've got to deal with every month. And it it, it just ties you to one place having a mortgage. Well, maybe you want to be in one place with a house and all that, but it's um it's not, none of these things are givens anymore. And yes, I don't like the idea of renting to, this is, this is probably, look, here's the answer. Earn more money. And if you can't earn enough money on your one job, then first, well, you should be an entrepreneur anyway. What's this stuff about? I, I can't earn enough on my job. Having a job, actually, uh, after you develop some skills and habits, you should become an entrepreneur. I mean, people have an absolutely infinite desire for goods and services. Everybody out there wants lots more in the way of goods and services. So an entrepreneur, if he's got a broad enough base of knowledge and skills and grit, will figure out what, how can I give these people what they want? Mm-hmm. And what will they pay me in return? Instead of going out and looking for a job, and it's actually kind of degrading to go out and look for a job. At least have to have skills. Yeah. No, yeah. If you're learning skills, a job is the best, is also uh, can be the best way to do it because you get paid to learn. Yes. But, but yeah, uh, as soon as you, especially when you start to become a, uh, like a skilled high earner, yeah, it's a big, it's, a, and it's, it's a trap. I think, uh, Nassim Taleb has this, has said something about like there's nothing, um, you know, more dangerous than a salary or more addictive than a salary, you know, that once you have a high salary, it's just so hard to, you're, you're more trapped. Basically you're just as trapped as you would be if you had a lot of debt, essentially you're, you're because you get so used to that showing up every two weeks in your account. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Being on a salary is kind of the inverse of the trap of being in, in debt. And the two of them go together, actually. Exactly. It's, it's, it's quite perverse. It is. It is. Okay. So uh, next question. What do you think about the concept of the free private city? So we have talked about it before. But it was a long time ago, maybe two years ago. So what do you think of that concept? Free private well, cities. Oddly enough, on another Zoom call that I'm on with uh, people that are interested in this type of thing, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, somebody who's kind of a leading light in the free private city movement, and it is a movement kind of, um, is going to give me a rundown of all the free private city projects in the world today. And there are a number of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in getting caught up. And uh, after I learn what uh, he's got to say, I can retell it here on the Excellent. call. It's kind of Excellent. Yeah. But, maybe, maybe even, maybe we should, maybe even if, if it goes well, ask him to come on and explain it to people on the podcast. That, that might be better to hear it from the horse's mouth. And incidentally, I'm sorry, I don't have the damn thing with me, but I um, looked through a, a sports jacket the other night when I went to a dinner and in my pocket, I found a coin, a one ounce silver coin from the Republic of Minerva. Now I question whether anybody listening to this call now has heard of the Republic of Minerva, but um it's a, a set of islands of islands that are uh, above water, depending on the tides, <laughs> about 100 miles off of Fiji. And back in um, back in the 70s, there was a guy named Mike Oliver, has an interesting and very checkered history. I've known him for many years. Uh, claimed these unclaimed islands. Uh, 100 miles from Fiji and formed the Republic of Minerva. And uh, one of the things that he did in order to generate income for his new country was issue Republic of Minerva silver coins, which are unusual in that they have, um, oh, goodness, uh, I think 15 grains. I don't know what that would translate into in grams, probably a quarter of a gram or something like that. Uh, On top of the silver coin, with the head of the goddess Minerva. And yeah, so I had this coin because a friend of mine and I uh, helped Mike market these things back then. That's awesome. Yeah, I haven't heard of it. So nobody's heard of it. I've got to check someplace where people know about these things and see what these rare Republic of Minerva coins are worth. Uh, Yeah. They have a face value. $35. $35. I believe we were selling them, marketing them for $75. And in today's environment, who knows what they're worth because they're real oddball things and good looking. I wish yeah. I had it in front of me because I just it was in my pocket just the other day. You know, this is a drawer upstairs now. You know, you just, you just got silver and gold laying around everywhere, Doug. Just. Oh. just <laughs> Now that's the way that's the way it should be. In um in um I think it was whose whose book was that? It was um well it was a Heinlein book and uh Stranger in a Strange Land. And uh that re- really an interesting book. So this the hero of the story uh 
was kind of running a cult, but was a very successful cult. And when anybody was leaving, they could just grab a handful of gold or silver coins when they were leaving to, uh, oh, here, bullion. The bullion value, look, oh, this is kind of interesting. A Republic of Minerva coin sells for about $300 today. That's good. It's a beautiful coin, though. I'm looking at pictures of it. It's, eh, I'd keep it. Yeah, I'm going to keep it. Bullion value $38. It said there. Looked on the other computer. Yeah, it's very unique. That's unique. Cool. Okay. Uh, next question is, uh, when the shit hits the fan, how does Doug and Matt consider the reactions and overall behavior from the locals? I assume we're talking about here in Uruguay, if you know, shit hits the fan. It says whether a sudden or gradual decline, both will result in a, in more social unrest and being a gringo, especially a publicly known one like you makes one a target. Um, he says, obviously having a strong community to the extent possible in a foreign land makes sense and being away from the big cities helps. However, I keep considering how wild things could get with a bunch of desperate people, particularly in Latin America, which is already generally low trust. Well, look, I think if we were living in Rio de Janeiro with the favelas, totally surrounding Ipanema and Copacabana beaches and all that. Well, that might get dicey. I mean, yeah, I can see that. But in Uruguay in particular, we're not on a farm. And I, I just can't feature people getting in their cars and, you know, they say, hey, there's a rich gringo that lives in that, that farm over there. Well, what are they going to get in their cars and drive down? And everybody knows if you go to a farm, what are you going to steal? You're going to steal a cow, or maybe steal some <laughs> household goods. Hard to steal. It's not going to get them anywhere. And these people yeah. don't think in terms of stealing stuff. So, sure, anything can happen. But uh, I, I actually feel uh, safer here in Uruguay than I do almost any place in the U.S. I agree. I, I think the big thing that people that you, that you can't just lump all Latin America into one category, you know, and I'm, I, there are certain parts, like you, you said, in uh, Rio or in um, some parts of Mexico, I would definitely be worried. There's certain, you know, in the big cities in Peru and Ecuador, you know, I'd be, I'd be nervous about all those places, but um yeah. But every country has its distinct culture among the people and the way that they deal with issues. And I think the Uruguay way of dealing with things is very non-confrontational, which is interesting um, in and of itself. And also there's it's a it's a it's a farming culture, even though obviously there's Montevideo, the 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 big city here. Um, you know, and there are city dwellers that act like city dwellers, but it's a, the agricultural component is big and as a midwesterner like i kind of recognize that part you know and so there's like a there's a a different way you view the life i guess when you see it through the cycles of nature you know through cause and effect it makes you more i think it makes you a little bit more ethical in the way that you deal with other people but yeah i i i agree with you uh and when i was montevideo 
last week. Uh, I think I saw one person that was, I guess he was a bum, but there weren't, this isn't like San Francisco or LA or uh, New York where bums are everywhere and sleeping on, on the street. And No, it's not, it doesn't happen. No, it doesn't happen. Okay, uh, next question. This question I had to ask because they said Matt probably won't ask. But Doug, knowing what you know today, what advice would you give to Matt, age 40 to 50, uh, uh, I guess, how to reevaluate one's priorities in life, where to focus your energy and time? Um, you know, maybe something that wasn't obvious to you at that age, but became apparent as you got older. Hmm. Well, one thing to think of is that, uh, you know, I'm a great believer. I, I, I pointed this out in the past, and it's always on my mind. It's that, uh, you know, these laws of nature are important. And as much as I'd like to believe that the singularity is going to happen, as Ray Kurzweil predicts, within the next 20 years at this point, I can see indications, yeah, I think it probably is going to happen. And that'll kiss everything and make it better, allow you to live as long as you want to live and in pristine health in, in the peak of youth, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, this can all happen. But maybe it won't. I mean, so that uh, you got to recognize that at a certain point, your body is at its peak and then it degenerates. The second law of thermodynamics, all systems wind down. Unless you, have, unless you have enough outside inputs of energy to keep them up. But that's just not possible with biological systems the way they're currently structured. So kind of keep that in mind, okay? And that reflects on what you do financially and what you do intellectually and emotionally and practically. So uh, it's kind of like everybody knows that you're going to die, but, uh, you know, Stop acting like you're actually going to live forever. Possible. Mm. Possible for the first time in human history. Possible. But uh, don't plan your life around it. I mean, uh, so think about, do stuff. I mean, I guess, what's the best answer to this question? It would be, um, I, I think that there are enough things that you do that you regret. Hopefully not too many, but enough. Uh, but what you really regret are things that you didn't do because mm. you were too lazy or you weren't brave enough or God knows what the excuse is. Mm. So uh, do stuff so you don't have any regrets about having been a potted plant your whole life as you mm. get old. Because as you get older, it, it's harder to do stuff. I mean... You're not going to take a 25 mile hike anymore. It ain't going to happen after you reach a certain age. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that really wasn't an issue for you. I mean, you learned to play polo in your, you know, mid 40s. Like, who does that? Well, I know that was actually kind of dumb uh, <laughs> on my part because most you weren't people, acting like you were going to live forever. That's for sure. No, that's right. And and most people give up polo when they when they're in their forties for all kinds of reasons that become very obvious to you. But so I took it up when most people were giving it up, which isn't 
maybe it wasn't so smart, but I'm so glad I did it. Even yeah. though it was like running a small business that hemorrhaged money, you know, yeah. it's actually a, a good way to describe playing polo. <laughs> it, it is running a small business and it does hemorrhage money. So, but at great physical risk, I, I've got to point out also, I'm, yeah, I'm glad I did it. So anything you want to do like that, do it. Is there anything though, this question is, is there anything that's become apparent to you now though, that wasn't, wasn't obvious to you in your forties, uh, I guess in your forties. Hmm. I can't think of anything, anything occurring to you at this point. Uh, this is supposed to be your advice to people like me at my age. So I don't know. <laughs> no, I have no idea. I have no idea, but I, I mean, you just been so like uh, consistent in your view about life as uh, all the time I've been reading your stuff and known you. And it seems like actually your whole life, you know, you've been very, once you had this model for the, for the world and the way your approach to life, it seems like you've been pretty consistent about it the whole time. Yeah. I think it is important to have a model for the way the world works in your own, you know, to have thought about it enough and have enough experience so you can test different theories of how the world works. So I think that by the time you're in your 40s or your 50s, you ought to have pretty well figured things out. I hope so. We'll see. Well, I've got it. <laughs> I think I think you have. So you don't really need any advice at this point. Oh, but, I, I can use plenty. I can use plenty, but... Yeah, listen, I can I can use advice on all kinds of things too. But um I guess the answer to the question is so that the question answers itself is as early as you can, you know, read as much as you can and learn as much as you can and do as much as you can and build assets. You know, there's it gets back to these three most important verbs in any language. Be, do, and have. And by doing things, you become something. You be. And by being something, it actually helps you to have things. And the having makes it easier to do. So it's a virtuous circle between doing and having allow you to be something. Because in the end, the doing and the having don't make any difference. It's just being so the, right, uh, if, but the gateway to being is not being right. The gateway is the not, doing. It's not being. No, try, starting out wanting to live as a, a a Taoist monk, probably not a good idea to to have that as a goal when you're in your to try to do it when you're in your twenties. Yeah, you got things backwards. So yeah. that's good yeah, advice. Start 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 out doing stuff. That'll allow you to have stuff, and okay, help you to be stuff. That's I mean, great. Yeah, it's like, it's like, um, you know, something like Woody Allen, all his movies are about angst and worrying and, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But if he had to work in a coal mine loading 16 tons every day, he wouldn't have time to think about anything. He'd just be keeping body and soul together. So that's why it's important to have stuff so you can kind of advance to. Exactly. I don't know if that's an answer. Maybe there is no answer. I can't think of it. <laughs> no, <laughs> now you're getting to the Buddhist stuff again. The Taoist no, stuff. I don't know. <laughs>
All right, just a few more questions for you. These are pretty quick ones, but um, what do you think of the islands of St. Kitts and Nevis as a bug out location? So not as a second passport, but as a bug out location. Well, I've been to St. Kitts, spent a few days there and um, conference actually, but, you know, drove all around the island and looked at real estate and so forth. It's a quiet, backward little place. I mean, uh, and you could probably, for a Caribbean island, probably live there relatively cheaply because uh, when people buy passports, one of the ways to get a passport is by buying a property there, a house, a condominium, actually a condominium. So there's lots of these condominiums that foreigners have bought and found that they just don't want to spend time there because I don't know. You don't want to spend a, you know, you, there you are in a condominium, not on the beach either. And now what are you going to do on St. Kitts? It's kind of boring. Yeah. So You're, it's like being in Alcatraz. You're in a cell block. <laughs> to me, it's what it sounds like. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it is. And uh, tropical climate, and, which is good, except that, you know, that house that you bought from the foreigner who bought the house because he wanted the passport or not house, condo, you know, needs to be maintained and it gets mildew and, and you got to take your car to the beach, you know, not, not just step out your front door. And even that gets old after a while. And, uh, answer to the question, bug out place. I think you could do better, frankly. Because you may be a citizen, but you're never going to be a, what do they call themselves? Kittians? St. Kittian? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what they call themselves, actually, but you know, you're always going to be a little bit of an outsider. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's the best choice. Okay. All right. Uh, do you think the Fed will eventually buy U.S. stocks to bolster the stock, bolster the stock market? And I think that would require a, Change well, legally it would require a change in the Fed charter, I think, to be able to do that. But do you think it ultimately will come to that? Uh, well, since stocks are still grossly overpriced, it's not an immediate threat. But got to point out, there's lots of precedent around this around the world for this. In Japan, they've done that. In Hong Kong, they did that. Um, and in Switzerland, of all places, I mean, the Swiss, the Swiss. Central bank actually, and I don't know what it is right now, but it actually turned into a hedge fund because they bought so much in the way of, especially tech stocks like Apple and that, that, uh, they look like geniuses. So, um, yeah, it's entirely possible, I think. Mm. And they can find out and they can change the rules. I mean, look, they can change any rules in a New York second, if, if they think it's important or necessary or profitable for, or whatever. Right. Or just ignore the rules and pretend they aren't there. I mean, that's, that's what everyone seems to do quite often, you know, if it does not convenient. Right. Yeah. Who cares? Any, anybody, oh, the average American doesn't even know what the, the Fed is. I mean, so sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Last question for you. So uh, says, I read and hear a lot of, that the COMEX really doesn't have, uh, all the inventory that it should have. And then once people ask for delivery, um, 
once they, people ask for delivery, basically they will not have the inventory they're supposed to have. He also says, I also hear that the inventory is at its lowest ever. Do you think it's possible today to corner the silver market like the Hunt brothers did in the past? And if so, how would one do so? I think it would be unwise to try to corner it because look what happened to the Hunts. The Hunt brothers, exactly. I don't think people yeah. know the whole story, Doug. Maybe you can explain what happened. Well, uh, two brothers, Bunker and Nelson Hunt, were real silver bulls. This was back in... What was the date on that? Was it in the 70s or was it in 1980? Late 70s, about 1980. Back when silver, back then, got as high as $50 an ounce. They owned a huge amount of it, but it was on margin. And um, the exchange changed the rules and said, nope, we're raising margin. And they had to sell. And of course, when they had to sell, owning all the silver on commodity style margin, uh, they lost a gigantic amount of money, came close to bankrupting themselves. So from being rich Texas oil men, they became uh, almost penurious silver speculators. And But anyway, does the COMEX, how much silver should they have? Well, I don't know. It, the way commodity exchanges should work is, does the exchange have to have any hogs? Does the exchange have to have any cattle? Does the exchange have to have any wheat? Hmm. Does the exchange have to have any silver? Uh, you know, just on delivery you know, day, I guess, right? But it doesn't have to have it sitting there. No, it's somebody else's silver. For every long, there's a short, and yeah. so forth. So it's pretty. It should. Maybe I'm missing something here. It's quite possible I'm missing something here. But uh, you know, just like uh, the exchange doesn't own any wheat doesn't have to own any silver and, and, and store it well. You know, I'm not I'm not completely sure what the technicalities might be that would make it different. But uh, and, and then we get into this argument of uh are the powers that be suppressing the price of gold and suppressing the price of silver? And the answer to that question is no. They don't want the prices of those things to be higher, just like they don't want the prices of copper or corn or they don't want well, them higher they, because, you know, it's better that prices be low and the consequences of printing money aren't evident. But no, they're not actively suppressed. They don't they don't give a damn about gold and silver, quite frankly. They think they're pet rocks, these people. Yeah. And not only think they're pet rocks, but they're ideologically opposed to them. So why bother suppressing them? I mean, it's it's not even on their radar screen. It, it will be in the future, but it seems like that's part of the same question. Uh, yeah. The answer is, I'm not exactly sure, but I don't think so. But I think the important thing is that it did not work well for the Hunt brothers, both the market or big market players and the feds went after them, right? Cause they got, they got charged with uh, charges of conspiracy to corner the market or something like that. So apparently it's that even effort is, uh, or conspiring to do it is where the crime is. Yeah. Well, it shouldn't be a crime. I mean. Yeah. It's a civil thing. I think, I guess it was civil. I'm just reading yeah. about it now. But, uh, 
don't worry about these things, okay? I think I, I think the answer to the question is, if you buy silver right now and you buy gold right now, I think it's a good idea, which I hesitate to say, even though gold is at a nominal or close to a nominal all-time high. Yeah, I'm still buying it. It's going higher. And it's still silver. Speculative vehicle, much more volatile than gold. Yeah, very friendly towards silver and very friendly towards platinum as well, mainly because uh, not a lot of inventories of platinum and it's mostly, almost all mined in South Africa. And South Africa is heading for big problems, including the platinum mines there. So... Well, that's something we should probably discuss in file, like how you, uh, not here, but how you, how you invest, um, knowing that with platinum, is it platinum direct or is it miners or something else? I don't know, but we don't talk about it now, but we should maybe, we should talk about that for, for file at some point. Cause I'm curious. I don't know. Yeah. Worthwhile subject actually. Uh, yeah. Okay. And we could toss palladium in there too, which is also traded in the futures market, but most people don't think of palladium at all. Hmm. Hmm. Well, great. And, and incidentally, this is just a kind of interesting thing. Did you know that in their pure, their pure refined metallic form, uh, all metals out of the 92 elements on the periodic chart, how many are actually metals? I don't know. Probably like 70 out of the 90 mm-hmm. things on. But do you know that there's only two? Uh, metals that aren't could easily be mistaken for silver. You know what they are offhand? Gold. Yeah. And is it copper? Copper. Yeah. Everything else kind of looks like silver. Hmm. Just a. I guess that's where being a geologist comes in handy. Yeah. Kind of a useless, trivial fact, but, uh, you know. Yeah, I think I only know that because I think I've heard you say it before. I wouldn't have. I mean, gold's obvious, but it's kind of, it's kind of a good barroom bet with yeah. uh, with 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 somebody. But you'd have to, in order to even make the bet, you'd have to be sitting at a bar with a relatively well-educated person that's even aware of kind of the generalities and back of the question. Right. Yeah. No, I don't think that. I don't... It's better to keep the conversation in a bar focused on the weather, sports, and politics. I think that's all anyone knows or talks about. I think. Yeah, yeah, so. you're right. And probably, probably not religion. Can't talk about that. Probably not at a bar of all things. No. Although I think that's easier to talk about than. Yeah, that's easier to talk about now than it than it has been in the past. As long as you're attacking it, any but you can attack any religion. I think it's fine. But uh, which is a religion in of itself to attack religions constantly. Yeah. Well, religion is becoming less and less an element in the U.S. and in Europe. It's not. I don't think it's an element at all anymore. Most right. Europe. The religion is wokeism, and that one you cannot criticize. So that's that's right. It. That is the new religion. There's no question about it. Yes, mm. that's mm. exactly right. It's overturning wokeism. Is overturning Christianity the way. Christianity overturned the old gods back in the fourth century. It's amazing. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there for now. Doug, thank you very much. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Matt. You too.